Alright everyone, this is Taming Chaos, uh, preparing for your next incident. My name is Gustavo Franco, I'm a site reliability engineer at Google, and I'm here today with Tim Craig. Uh, Tim has been working on DIRT and instant response at Google for the uh, past six years. And Tim, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your current role? Thanks. As you said, I started about six years ago within SRE, working on DIRT, and that kind of expanded out to other things. And right now, my primary focus is instant response and management. Uh, we have a tool that we've released publicly under Stackdriver. Uh, so trying to get engineers to build the right things there and take the practice that we learned over the last six years and get it out to everybody else. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, you said you've been working on uh, instant response for quite a bit. Why should a team prepare for such a thing? So why people should care about instance, I guess, and, and, and how should they prepare for potential instance? Uh, well, the why is because, you know, you don't want to figure these things out as you're going at 2 a.m. when you get paged and you've got to try to learn how your systems work and how they don't work and what you can do and what you can't do. So you want to practice these so that it becomes second nature when you're in the actual instant response so that you can get that over with quicker and, and get your service back up and go back to sleep. You mentioned pages. So like, how do you, how do you define an incident? So kind of before I think we move forward, what's the definition of incident? Is that just, does it have to be a page? Like, how, how does that work? No, an incident is really when you're dealing with something that is affecting your users. So page is the most likely scenario where you've configured your system to alert you when there's a problem, and then you're responding to that. It doesn't have to be an alert. It could be your boss tells you that something's broken, your customers call you, or you just happen to notice. Uh, would you say any team should actually work, given that framework of definition of an incident? Is there any requirement in terms of uh, team, organization size, complexity? So how, like, how should they start to, to think about preparing for instance? Well, really, it, this involves everybody. The typical response is you've got the system administrator, the SRE, the person that's dealing with the system that has to do the response. But as it gets bigger, as you know, depending on your systems and as it grows, you may involve a lot more people. You can involve uh, your bosses. You can involve legal if you have some questions there. When you get into external customers, then you deal with comms and PR and other things. And you can have a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds responding to this incident. And that depends on the size and what your company does and what industry you're in. It seems like a lot of things could grow or go wrong. So how do you go about choosing what, what incidents to prepare for? Uh, well, the, the short answer is all of them, but uh, it's never really practical. Uh, so you do have to pick. The best way to pick is which ones you can learn the most from and which ones concern you the most and keep you up at night the ones that you have less experience at or more risk of happening. Do you have any general uh, insights in terms of tooling to actually to prepare for an incident? So you talk about a little about process, like is there any tooling and any approaches in terms of software and tooling that we could use to prepare for instance? Uh, absolutely. The first one we, we talked about a little bit already is the alerting. So you're configuring when the system should notify you. So you don't have to sit there and stare at your graphs. The graphs and the monitoring are sort of integrated with that. So they can show you what's going on. Then you can set your thresholds for the alerts based on your experience and your testing that we're talking about here. And you just keep iterating on those so that your threshold adjusts to let you know at the right time, hopefully before your customers notice. It's very important. And that's really where other things can kind of feed into that where if you develop an SLO, that SLO is meant to represent what your customer will feel and how that relates to your systems and define thresholds so that you know before your customers do, and hopefully you can fix it before they even notice. That's ideally the intent of this is we reduce the median time to mitigation. You get to the point where your customers never know anything happened and they don't know that these incidents are going on. 
Uh, they're very short, they're very contained, and quick to uh, get the user back to what they want to do. Great. Thanks, Tim. So you talk a little bit about the processes and like when I should go about starting uh, an instant response or training, for instance, and a little bit of tooling and when the definition of instant and a couple more items there. What about the other part of your role, DIRT? So what is DIRT? Can you explain? Uh, sure. So DIRT is an acronym standing for disaster recovery testing. It's DIRT because DRT didn't really spell anything. So DIRT sounds a lot more fun and that's what we're going to keep it. Google has a very strong atmosphere about keeping things fun and light where we're talking about a serious situation like incidents and affecting users. So Dirt is a program that's been running for uh, about 15 years now. And it's a company-wide program that organizes this effort of understanding what you need to test, encouraging testing, helping you test, and then making sure you learn from that and get benefit, not just within your team, but we also do it across the company, across the org, lots of different variants there on the levels. What are the differences and similarities between DIRT and uh, the term that's being used uh, broadly across the industry called chaos engineering? So how would you, what's common, what's different, I guess? Largely they're the same. Uh, I'm involved in the chaos engineering group community. And one of the things I don't like about it is the term chaos. Uh, it's not the intent that they have, but the whole purpose of what we're trying to do here is test before there's chaos. I like to think of the term controlled chaos as what we're trying to do here. All of these tests don't introduce chaos into the system uncontrolled. Part of the purpose of DIRT is to really know as much as you can about what's going to happen, control it. So if anything goes wrong, if you find something that is really bad that you weren't expecting, you have a way to stop it. You're already prepared to do that. You have the right people. The chaos engineering often focuses a lot on the system side of things, the tooling, the integration, whereas DIRT adds that layer of process. We run DIRT tests that have nothing to do with computers or engineering. We do tests that involve people. Can we page somebody? Can we call an executive on their uh, satellite phone? Can we get them on a plane when we have to? Any of that involves something, an incident that affects a user, whether that user is the people that need to hear the answer or that executive that needs to get out of a country or anything. You said that DIRT has been, uh, the program has been going on for roughly 15 years. How has it changed over the course of the 15 years, I guess, you've been running it, you, you evolved for the past six years? Uh, yeah, so as you said, uh, you know, it's been running well before me and, and what I try to do is help it move to the next level. Scaling is probably the best way to describe how it's evolved over the 15 years. It started as somebody just wanted to run some tests with a couple teams, and then the teams grew, and then it was the whole S3 organization, and then it was the whole company, uh, and we introduced a lot of different questions in that, the different types of tests, the different types of people involved. Uh, so we had to scale the program in order to be able to account for that many tests. I'm not going to give a number, but uh, I'm sure you can imagine Google's not a small company anymore. And it there's a lot of tests that go on. There's a lot of teams and a lot of services that we want to make sure stay up on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so scaling is definitely the big one. Uh, what comes with that is you need to reduce the toil uh, in order to run these tests. Uh, if one person has to spend an hour and you run a lot of tests, let's say a thousand, that's a thousand hours of time that you're just going to run the test. Uh, that doesn't even account for what you learn and what you have to do after and other people involved. So you need to be able to reduce the toil and reduce the barrier of entry to testing. And with that naturally comes automation, both in writing the test and running the test.
What are some of the other tools or processes you put in place then for actually like to improve efficiency, as you're saying, reduce the toy or and for any other reason? What are the, some of the tools and processes that have been put in place for uh, disaster recovery testing? So as I mentioned, the automation of the toil, we originally started with some post-it notes and some Google documents and some spreadsheets and try to maintain it all manually, and, and that just didn't scale. So we started working automation on understanding where any given test was and the process of reviewing every test and scheduling it and understanding what's going on at any time, work with the people running the test so they know when, what they have to do and when, and other people know when those tests are going on. So if anything goes wrong, as I said, it's controlled. So we need to know what's going on so we can stop it or maybe change it, maybe make it a little bit worse in some cases. Uh, so we built a tool to help that organization so that the team that's running this can work with each of the individuals doing their test in a very efficient manner, and they know what's going on, and we know what's going on. Some of the other things is, on the other side, running the test. When you write out 15 steps that you have to go test and go have to run those manually, maybe hopefully you're copying and pasting. Some people don't. It still takes a lot of time to make sure you've got the steps in between where you're checking output manually and making sure everything's okay to proceed to the next step. Uh, so that's where we built a fault injection tool called Catzilla internally that allows you to do these things very automatically, which means you can iterate on them very fast. You can change the test as you're going. You can repeat it on a much higher frequency. So you can run it once a week, once a day, once an hour, if you really want to, probably not. But then you're reducing the toil to that initial setup, and then everything repeats and keeps going as long as you want. That way, you're always ready for an incident. You don't have to wait and plan and, and do this and say, well, I'm not going to do it, but once a year, well, then you've got 364 days that you're not prepared. How do you, uh, how do you about defining uh, success on either per test basis or for the entire program? So what's the success criteria for every test? That's a hard question and one that we've always asked ourselves and keep iterating on. My short answer is that any test that you even attempt to run is successful. I get people that say, my test didn't go, and they're like, it failed. And I was like, that's wrong. It's not a failure. You tried to run it even, and you learned something. As long as you're learning something from the person running the test, I consider that a success. Even if you didn't even try to execute it, but in the process of preparation, you learned a lot about your system. You learned why the test will fail. Well, you learn that without any impact, and that's even better. So then you go fix those things, and you iterate on that test, and you repeat exactly the same thing. You try to go further. And you keep doing that until you're going far enough that you've worked out all those kinks. And then even after it's successful, you don't want to stop. You want to keep repeating because systems change and that same test may fail again later. How should I go about starting a third program at my company? And how does that relate to uh, instant response? Uh, start wherever you can is the short answer. It really helps to have your leadership buy-in as high as up as you can go. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't do it. What the leadership buy-in really helps you do is justify your time spent on it. So you need that from your manager, your leadership, whatever that entails. The more you can use automation tools and everything, the less time you're spending, so the less uh, approval you need. But what really helps with that higher leadership is you can not only break things in a very controlled environment, but you can get into your production environment and potentially impact users where that's going to be much different than your controlled environment. Uh, we all hope that our desktops and our dev environment are exactly like prod. And we all know that they are not. You know, so you run these tests in your dev environment, in your local environment, and see what you can learn there. 
but at some point you're going to hit a limit where you can't learn anymore and you really need to go to a bigger environment in prod with actual users and the exact configuration that's in prod because that's what's going to break and that's what you're going to have to deal with at 2 a.m. So you want to get there eventually. And to do that, you need some support to make sure that if anything goes wrong, you're covered. You know, you're doing this with good intentions of trying to make things better for your users. And that's the approach you should take with your leadership to try to get their buy-in that this isn't something you want to just go break everything. You want to improve things for the users in the long run. And uh, I think I alluded to some of them, but what are some of the most common uh, types of pushback from executives and other engineers while you're trying to start you know, this kind of program on, on an organization? Uh, it really goes down to cost in one way or another. Cost is different to everybody. When you get up into the VPs and stuff, they look at cost as dollar signs. There is a cost to a program like this. You should not sugarcoat that. It is very much a cost. It's just a question of, are you ready to pay a cost and how much? You can spend a small amount of money and maybe test in your local environment and maybe there's a risk that it's different than prod. You spend more money and get to prod and you have a higher confidence that you're prepared when that pager goes off. Any level of that, anything you do benefits you and gets you closer to where you want to go. So it's just more of a question of how much money you want to spend for the benefit. When you get outside of VPs and you get down to the engineers, you have to convince them too. We're site reliability engineers and, and our whole job is to never let production break. So trying to convince an SRE initially that we want to break your system and take it down and affect users, it gets a lot of people on edge. Some of that is you have to help them understand that this is for the users. They can read the SRE book that's available or talk to other SREs, learn how they've experienced this. And that's where you really start to build something. You know, over the last 15 years, we've developed a lot of stories and the storytelling does a lot there where you can... You know, talk about a scenario, whether it's a dirt test, uh, uh, some other type of test, or an actual production incident, and you tell the story like it's fun, because it really is. Everybody enjoys that outage and the adrenaline rush of getting the system fixed. You don't always enjoy it up until that point when it's all broken and you don't know what's going on. But that's where the preparation comes in and gets you there. Uh, so you talk about that and you, know, you help them along. We talked about the cost and reducing toil. So you take that away from that engineer that has to do this and say, I just need to sit down and run this command. And there's not a lot of time investment in there. And you say, hey, here's a way to run it safely. You take away some of the risk and you say, I've talked to the leadership and they buy in. So I've got you covered if anything goes wrong and kind of sort of cover a lot of those to help ease their fears. Yeah, I think you're calling out like it's not so much a cost, but an investment techniques on how to convince engineer leadership that it's actually an investment. Do you have any examples where in the past year, like stories I've told uh, engineers of like past incidents where it's, you know, been clearly proven like here's an investment or any kind of like uh, positive impact that DIRT has produced that you can now point to and say, clearly it wasn't a cost, it was actually an investment. So I think my favorite story on this, is, and there's variants of this, we had a hurricane heading towards our, the East Coast. And the first thing that everybody asked for is, where's the DIRT team? You know, it's a, the group of individuals that's gone through this review and practice in this for large-scale incidents affecting data centers and large amounts of products and networks and everything else. And we've proven that we know how to handle those very efficiently, very smoothly, very calmly and have the control and the communication just as they need to be. And that was the first question is, let's bring in that team that's very well practiced at these large-scale incidents to prepare. In that case, nothing went wrong, but we were very prepared. We were ready to go. We had all the communication out. We were monitoring everything that needed to be monitored. And 
the confidence that the senior leadership gave us that says, you're the team we want sitting there uh, just in case. We're going to pay you to not do anything but be ready. That kind of shows the support that we've gotten and really highlights the anecdotal success of the program and the team that's behind it. Is that in the tight end to uh, instant response? And like, so let's say thinking of organization of there's like much smaller than Google, how can I convince uh, or could someone convince the leadership that it's worth investing in a third program? I think you're making like an example there. There's a tight end to instant response or eventually like, oh, there's disaster about to happen. Let's get, you know, the third team to be involved. Uh, what are some of the, uh, the strategies there to actually convince folks that like, yeah, this program can be successful? Uh, if tied to instant response, and how would you actually relate those two? Uh, so to answer that question, the best way to do it is highlight the things that some of the things that have come out of the DIRT program that we've learned. Uh, again, DIRT uh, and this disaster testing and preparation is all about learning. That's what it ultimately comes down to. As long as you're learning, you're, you're doing something. But what we learned is that we needed a, a program to organize our data integrity. Uh, and by that, I mean making sure that our backups are stable and usable. Uh, just because you send something to tape doesn't mean you can actually get it back and make it work. So we have to make sure we're going the full life cycle. And then, as we talked about before, add some automation and tooling around that to reduce the toil, make it easier. Uh, people want to do these things, but uh, priorities are always hard. So the easier you can make it to do the right thing, the better. So we spun up that program directly out of DIRT. Another one that came out is what's known as IMAG, Incident Management at Google. It's based largely on the ICS for that emergency responders use, but adapted to Google and its processes and the way we work. So we took that and said, we need to run these dirt war rooms. War room being where we organize the folks that run these tests and make sure everything works and, and be able to respond when there's a problem. So we built this process around what we were already doing and formalized it and started doing training such that everybody at the company knew the same processes, no matter which incident they jumped into, whether it's one just for their team or one that's affecting everybody, they knew what to expect. If they were asked to fill in a role such as an incident commander, they knew what that job role was and what they needed to do there and how they could help, where they could find information and who to talk to. All those questions were answered. Not only did we develop the process, but we also ran through training through DIRT programs and others so that people were practice, going back to, back to these same principles of iterate and be ready and, and make the second nature of following these things. So developing the process wasn't even enough because it's still a process. You need to remember it when you have your once a month incident, hopefully, and we need something to help them along. So that's where we started building tools for that. We've gone through a couple iterations of tools that implement that and help the user navigate this incident response process. Uh, and our latest that I, I talked about I was, I'm working on right now is our incident response tool under Stackdriver that anybody can use to help implement these processes, whether they're a small startup in, in the cloud or a full-blown Fortune 500 company. It doesn't matter. These things scale very well. So I see you're basically, I think there is a tooling component and also training. Are there any differences? And if I'm having a service and it's on-premise in the cloud or single public cloud or multiple clouds in terms of approaches of these three different pillars, how should I go about that? So for the process, the process is going to be the same on any of this. Whether you're in one location, it's on-prem, cloud, anything, you need your process to be able to scale. 
the size of the scaling can be affected if you have multiple clouds or, or on-prem plus cloud, but you still need that scaling aspect uh, regardless. For the, the tooling, you need a tool that works and integrates with your existing capabilities, whether that is the delivery mechanism of notifications in your communication, uh, it's meeting you where you're at with the responders or which chat are they in, where are they going to take their notes, and also your existing ticketing systems, you need some integration there. You don't want this to be an isolated process. You want this to be more integrated with what you're used to doing. So you're not trying to use something that's unfamiliar during you know, the potentially the worst time of your night or, or month or year, depending on how bad the incident is. So that the tooling is very important and the extensibility of it uh, to sort of meet you in your system where you're at. The training you know, that kind of goes with both of them. Uh, you want to train for your tool and you want to train for your processes. So as they change for your company or your size, you want to make sure that training adapts for all those different levels. The tooling one's an interesting one because we are talking about when things go wrong and you have incidents and your tooling can have an incident as well. You don't want to assume anything is going to be there. You always want to make sure you have a backup plan and you test that as well. So your tooling could go down, your communication tool, uh, whether it's a chat or a voice could go down. What is your backup plan? How and have you tested it? Did you Have you just written it down and then you're hoping that when all those things happen, you'll do the right thing? Uh, that's one strategy. Uh, it's a hope strategy and not one that we recommend. But if you practice it, that becomes less hope and more practice and more sure. We've had a lot of cases internally over the years where our incident response tooling has gone down. We actually, as the team that maintains that, we really think about that case. We want to make sure we practice what we preach and say, if our tool goes down, how are we going to deal with this? Because we can't use our tool. Uh, that's when we're going to have an incident, when our tool that we expect everybody else to use goes down. So how are we going through the process of organizing ourselves and communicating out to our users when other people are relying on our tool to do that? The other thing with training, it goes back to this whole thing, is no matter what level your training is or where you're focused on, it's important to continuously do it so that people are fresh on it and also repeat it. Don't assume that because you took a course on how to do instant response two years ago, you can handle a page today. The systems may have changed. The processes may have been tweaked as you've learned more. These aren't things that should be static. They should be adaptable and you know, as you have these incidents, you really go back to a postmortem at the end. And you know, Google has a strong culture of blameless postmortem. We want to focus on not who did what, but what happened and what went right, as well as what went wrong, and make sure we're coming out of there with things to fix. Sometimes that's fixing the system that broke. Sometimes that's fixing the tooling that you use to respond, whether it's the monitoring and alerting like we talked about, or the tools that you use to fix it. Maybe you didn't have a tool and you needed one or you had a tool and it didn't work. And it can also be around your processes. Did your incident response protocol work? Uh, do you need adjustments? Uh, did you not have the right people at the right time? Were they not trained? Somebody take a role that had no idea what was expected of them. And that can sort of lead in a circular loop uh, back to training and iterative improvements. How do you recommend people going about, uh, back to the discussion we had earlier in terms of cost versus investment, like how do people prove that all this investment and across training 
and tooling and processes is uh, paying off. So for folks in other companies, especially smaller companies than Google, do you have any examples or stories that you can share? Like even within like at the team level at, at, at Google, how do people do those things? How do they actually convince the leadership to invest on basically across the axis you just mentioned? So luckily, I came in after the dirt program was well established and we didn't have to convince anybody. We had a, a lot of buy-in. I'm sure that was a lot different when it started. Uh, but I have talked to teams that are trying to adopt some of this stuff outside of SRE at Google, as well as companies outside uh, that are trying to start this thing up. And some of them point to Google, some of uh, and the SRE book and similar uh, publications. Some of the companies there came from Google and came from this culture that they really liked how it worked there and, and carried it over with them. And sometimes it gets down to storytelling. Uh, as I mentioned, like we like to tell our stories and we like to get people excited about not only how things broke in a fabulous way, but also how we came together and got that resolved. So that kind of anecdotal stuff really helps tie it all together and get people to understand beyond the data, how does this stuff affect users, both the external users of your product, as well as your on-call responders, everything and, and the time that they spend. It really gets back to you know what data can you use. So the key is, as I mentioned, the point of responding is to reduce your mean time to mitigation. So you can measure that. If you introduce these processes, your monitoring, refine your SLOs and your alerting based on that, practice your instant response training, practice your systems and how they behave and how you fix them over the time, and then see how that's adjusted your, your MTTM. The other is how much time are you paying your on-call responders to spend just on this? This is kind of an on-call load. So even if you're not affecting your users, you may still be spending lots of time dealing with this. So you want to practice this and refine it and reduce that amount of time. That's how you can sell it both to your executives as well as your on-call. Point is to get your users back to a working state as quickly as possible so your on-call responders can go back to doing what they want to do versus responding to pages. So I heard uh, a little bit of uh, storytelling tied to data analysis. And the storytelling part you're saying, so internally at the company, you go and like tell team B, here's what we've done with team A and how well it went. On the data analysis part, I'm not entirely clear. How does that work? Is there like, so the, the MTM reduction thing. So how do you go about measuring that that is actually happening? Uh, so this goes back to some of the other stuff we were talking about around monitoring. You need to understand how your users are perceiving your application and when it's down, when it's not, and for how many users. Then you can start to measure how long it's been down. And you want to look at that over a period of time and try to decrease that. It should be the goal of any SRE to reduce that time and make this product more reliable and stable and uh, a better experience uh, by the user. So you can measure that through your monitoring and you capture that data over time, you know, uh, quarter to quarter, year on year, depending on you know the number of incidents that you have and what kind of time frame you're looking for. You're obviously going to start with a baseline. That's where you need to start understand where you're at and ask yourself if that's where you want to be. Uh, if you do the analysis uh, over the last month and say, wow, we were down for an average of five hours a day. Hey, maybe you're happy with that, but maybe you're not. Uh, hopefully you're not. I don't find that acceptable. And as a user, like if I if any product I was using was down for five hours a day, I wouldn't use it anymore. Uh, and that's kind of what we've seen in the industry is if a product's down for too long, uh, your data is unavailable for too long, they'll just go away. Uh, 
it's one of the stories we have with data integrity where somebody, some company had an email service and they had backups, but the service was down and, and they had to go to the backups. And the first thing they told the customers, we're not sure we can get it back all your email that you've collected over the years. And then they came back uh, about three days later and said, oh, we can get it back and it's going to take another week. Uh, and in about two weeks, the company didn't exist. Uh, so it, it's important not only to be able to get it back up, but get it back up very timely because uh, that's what users expect, especially nowadays. Uh, we live on our phones and everything is instantaneous. Five hours a day is uh, an eternity. And, you know, a startup can be created and destroyed in that time period. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Tim. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts for us on how to prepare for uh, our next uh, instant? Uh, I think the key thing there is ask yourself, what keeps you up at night? That's the question I ask when somebody asks, what should I test? And start there. Uh, but definitely don't stop there. Iterate on all of this. What you do when you start this program is you're going to you know, start it within your team. And then you're going to show some benefit out of your team. And then you're going to look at the teams next to you. And they're going to look at that value. And they're going to say, hey, I want to do that too. The team next to you is going to do it. And then it's eventually going to grow and turn into something like we have at Google, where everybody's involved and everybody wants to be involved. Uh, they see the benefit, they see the fun, and the excitement and, and the improvements that we've made because of it. The other thing I would say there is don't expect to jump into something that Google has today. A company can't start there. We, as I said, we've taken 15 years to get here, get to this point with a very refined methodology and practice and culture. Start small. Uh, start in your testing environment. As a developer, you can do these things. You don't have to even do the team. Just fire up a local instance of your product and try to break it. Ask your teammate if this was broken. You can do a wheel misfortune style thing where it's not even in the system. Just do a paper exercise of Ask them, say, this was broken, what would you do? And have them verbally respond. You're going to raise a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts, and, and you're going to find things that you want to go investigate and learn how you could have done it, how you could have done it better. And you may get tools and monitoring improvements and dashboards and everything set up well before you need them. But when you need them, you're going to be very glad that you did. And that is where you'll really recognize the payout of this. This is great. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks. Thanks.